This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Common Good. This program aims to build resilience in the community across three sectors, public, profit, and not-for-profit. We asked the question, what practical steps can we take in this post-COVID-19 era to become resilient? Welcome to The Common Good. Folks, I really enjoyed doing this podcast, interviewing some amazing people. I've decided to end this podcast series. And so I thought I'd play the best parts of some of the interviews that I really enjoyed. The next two episodes will be the last of this series. Once again, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this compilation. Um, Dan, I want to ask you first, um, you know, what were you doing before you became the curator of special projects at the museum? Uh, So I've been working in museums for about 14 years, um, ever since I left university. Um, You can probably hear I'm not from New Zealand originally. Mm -hmm. Um, So I grew up in in Nottingham in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, And then I went to university in Birmingham, um, where I studied archaeology and ancient history. Um, And then towards the end of my degree, I was starting to think, what am I going to do for a career? (laughs) Right. Um, Because I never really expected that that subject would lead me directly into a job. Um, But it just so happened that there was a a museum um, just about three quarters of of an hour down the road in Worcester that were advertising for casual front of house staff. Wow. and it was a sort of perfect opportunity. It fitted in with kind of the last few months of my studies and exam time, gave me mm-hmm. a bit of extra money. And then um, after I graduated, they they asked me to go full time. Um, and that oh, was great. kind of the start of it. So yes. I, I had the relevant degree, I suppose, mm-hmm. but, but it was kind of just chance that led me into yeah. the career. Yeah. They just happened to be advertising at, at a perfect time for me. Um, and I worked front of house there for about three years, and then I moved behind the scenes, did some collections work um, initially there, and then I, mm. I so moved... what's collections work? Because I come from a different background. Oh, collection yeah. for me means getting the money. Um, so <laughs> um, when we talk about collections, it's the objects in the museum, the right. artifacts that we that we hold. Um, mm-hmm. And depending on the museum, that could be anywhere from a few hundred objects up to at Canterbury Museum, two point three million objects. Um, and there are other museums with even more, you know, the, the British Museum's probably 10 million objects plus. Um, so, yeah, I initially started, Worcester is famous for its gloves. Um, so it's quite a big collection of sort of intricately uh, designed and sewn gloves. Oh. I started out cataloguing those. Right. Um, but after after working there, I moved down to London and got a job actually working for the Royal Air Force, but in their um, sort of their heritage side of things. Oh, right. So, like the Air Force Museum over here? Uh, similar, uh-huh. um, much smaller scale. So it, oh, I wasn't working yeah. at the Air Force Museum in the UK. I actually worked directly for the Air Force. But oh, I was yes. looking after sort of the heritage buildings on a couple of their air bases. 
okay. um, one of which had a small museum attached to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was great because I was it was a small institution, so I ended up having to be a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. Um, and it was a really good introduction to the whole breadth of museum work and every mm-hmm. every facet of it. So Because it was smaller, then you had much more responsibilities to actually... Yeah, exactly. And and more diverse workload. So a lot of collections, again, but more uh, front of house talking, interacting with the visitors. Management responsibility, primarily for volunteers, but then budgeting and um, forward planning and all that kind of stuff. Um, This is actually my second stint at Canterbury Museum. So I left that job with the Royal Air Force and I moved here into a different role at Canterbury originally, Mm -hmm. which I did for about two and a half years, then went back to the UK for a couple of years (laughs) and then came back here again. Um, And I've been back now for again for about two and a half years in in this role. Um, And it's it's probably my favourite job so far in my career um, because... I get to work on just the most fascinating projects. That's um, really cool. Which I guess we'll talk about yeah, later. Yes, but, definitely. Um, yeah. yeah, the mosque exhibition being one of them. Um, I'm working on the Ravenscar House project at the moment too. Yeah, there's yeah. lot. There's lots of fascinating. Seems stuff like you've on. figured your why. Yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> that's, um, that's... it's it's very rewarding, and yeah. I, I love it. I'm very lucky. So I just want to go back a little bit. Mm. So what made you actually? you know, take those subjects that you took um, in school and, and, and in college? Um, so <laughs> I I suppose I have been interested in history from quite a young age. Um, and, you know, I watched, like, I read the horrible histories books and things when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> right. But I think I had two just superb history teachers at school. Um, I was really mm-hmm. lucky. Um, they were... Uh, yeah, just sort of inspiring people who were in love with their subject and really um, projected that to the kids as well. And I was so lucky to be in their class. And I think I had the two of them for four years combined. Um, yeah, and they were encouraging. And um, and it was that that really sort of solidified, I suppose, my, my interest in history. And then I went off to university and studied ancient history and archaeology. Um, so sort of a yeah. very similar subject. Right. Um, but at that point, you ha- you had no idea where you're going to go after finishing the degree. No, none at all. <laughs> I, I had never expected that it would lead kind of into a directly related career. I yeah. was thinking I'll, I'll pick up um, sort of transferable skills, you know, research <laughs> skills and writing yes. skills and whatever. And then, mm-hmm. I don't know, go and work in yeah. business or finance or <laughs> something like that. Um, but yeah, I am um, just like I said, was really lucky that this museum was advertising mm-hmm. just at the perfect moment yeah. for me. It was, oh, yeah, cool. just yes. a stroke of luck. <laughs> now, what were your parents saying? You know, were they supportive or were they like, oh, you know, because I come from a very different background. I mean, mm. I was lucky that my parents didn't have any influence on me picking up what career I wanted, but most Indian parents were like mm. engineer, doctor, accountant. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anything else is like, you know, unless you become a Sachin Tendulkar of cricket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're really worried and, you know, they mm. really shape your career for you. But what about your parents? My parents have always been really supportive. So um, I'm from quite a working class background in the UK. So until my father, every generation of Stirland had worked in the coal mines. Um, okay. And... My dad didn't do that, so my dad trained as a draftsman and worked for an architect's firm. Um, But then I was the first 
I was the first member of our family to go to university. Um, so my parents, I think, were very proud of me for achieving that. Wow. And anything yes. on top of that kind yes. of would have been a bonus. <laughs> um, but they, um, they've always been, yeah, encouraging and supportive. I remember the first time they came to see where I worked. Yeah. Um, they, they had a good look around the museum and I kind of, you know, talked them through a little bit. I kind of gave them like a, a, a semi-guided tour. Right. Um, and at the end, my dad bought something in the gift shop. And it was just like, I can't even remember what it was. It was like a little, I don't know, a mug or something, you know, uh -huh. a branded yeah. mug or something like right, that. Right. And I kind of wondered at the time, why is he wasting his money on this rubbish? <laughs> <laughs> um, but he told me later that it was um, a, a keepsake so that he could remember uh -huh. that day and that... On the first job. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, his son's yeah. first job. Uh -huh. So that was kind of, that was really nice. Um and yeah, they. Um, I'm not sure they're always happy that I now live on the other side of the world. <laughs> um, Neither but, are my parents no. or my wife's parents. But they're yeah, they're very supportive of my career. Yeah, cool. um, uh, yeah, yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me like they must have fed your curiosity as well when you were, you know, studying history and studying the books and things like that. Yeah, I I always had books to read at home. Yeah, um, and I think. My parents recognised, I guess, reasonably early on that I was reasonably intelligent. Um, and so, yeah, they tried to encourage that. And, uh, yeah, I always had books to read, mostly mostly fiction. They mm -hmm. provided mm -hmm. me stories to yes. read, I guess, to try and spark my imagination as well. Um, and it wasn't the only thing that I was interested in. So sport was important for me as a kid as well. So I played a lot mm -hmm. of football. Um but, yeah, I was always kind of um, under pressure to do my homework and to <laughs> achieve at school. Uh -huh. um, right, yeah. Almost a bit of a um, sort of a consequence of my own success. I yeah. did quite well at school. And mm -hmm. so the expectation like, then was mm, that mm, I'd mm, continue yes. to do well at school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, now tell us a little bit about your role curator special projects mm -hmm. um so it's quite a diverse role and that's one of the things that i really love about it it's it's very interesting every day is different um so i i suppose you can break it down into a few different categories i have quite a lot of collections work so working mm -hmm. with the objects right and that um involves a few different tasks but for example um new acquisitions mm -hmm. so whenever somebody comes into the museum with an object that they would like to donate to the museum um, one of my jobs, there's a few of us that do it, but mm -hmm. one of our jobs is to assess that object, to chat to the person and find out as much as we can about the object, to try and come to some sort of conclusion as to whether or not the museum actually wants it. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason right. for that is that we have 2.3 million objects already, <laughs> and so we have to be a little bit choosy. A huge storage. Oh, yeah. It's, um, behind the scenes, there's yes. um, you know lots of stuff that... Some um, of it only. Yeah. yeah. So... We, we have to be a bit choosy about what we take in. So so that's part of it. We also have a lot of things hanging over from days gone by. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the past, our predecessors maybe weren't quite so rigorous as we tend mm -hmm. to be now and didn't yeah. have the same processes to follow. Um, and that 
creates problems. So we've got a lot of stuff in the museum, for example, that that is technically on loan, yeah. but that loan is not necessarily always documented. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of work. Um, I, for example, um, a couple of years ago, I did quite a lot of work with Tapapa mm-hmm. over some objects that belong to them, but are at Canterbury Museum to make sure that that was documented and everything was fully listed. And it's kind of yeah. almost a bit like solving a mystery, like, yeah. you know, what's here that actually belongs to you and how do we kind of <laughs> mm. determine that? Oh, I see. So that's one side of it. Um, exhibitions um, I is possibly one of my favourite bits um, of my job. So I've worked on a couple of quite important ones in the last year. Um, House of Treasures, which is the museum's 150th anniversary exhibition, um, and then Mosque, um, right. which was a, um, a co-production with the Muslim community in Christchurch. Um, and and a, a totally rewarding experience. Um, and then I've got a couple more coming up as well. So I'm working on the Ravenscar House project, um, which is mm-hmm. a big... Um, well, it revolves around an art collection, but it's right. a it's a private art collection that was on display in somebody's house. So it's sort of uh-huh. a recreating the, the home environment. We're yeah. calling it a house museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. really interesting. It's kind of a bit different to the it. norm. Yeah. Um, yeah, research as well. So um, we do a lot of research at Canterbury Museum. Um, we have um, curators working in a whole range of subject areas and they are producing um, original research that gets published in journals and um, and from time to time books. Um, oh, I see. So that's relatively new, mm-hmm. area, uh, relatively new ground for me. But, um, but again, it's really interesting. And um, I've worked on... Uh, worked on the museum's 150th anniversary book that we published last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on the records of the Canterbury Museum this year, which is yeah. an annual uh, publication that we produce. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's very diverse. So, it's it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it sounds mm. like very diverse and quite rewarding for you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> mm. Cool. Uh, so folks, we're going to take a small break and come back and talk to Dan a bit further. Welcome back, everyone. I've been talking to Dan about his role at Canterbury Museum as curator of special projects. And uh, Dan, can you give us a little brief history about the museum itself? You know, you know when it, when was it established, and you know how did it start? Yeah. Um, so the museum was founded in 1867, um, originally in the provincial provincial council chambers, um, and it was founded by Julius von Haast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he pretty much founded it with his own personal geological collection. Um, so Haast was the provincial geologist for Canterbury um, mm-hmm. before he was the director of Canterbury Museum. Right. Um, but more than that, um, he wanted it to be a cathedral of science, as, it, as he referred to it. Um, and it spent three years in the provincial council chambers, but then it moved into the purpose-built building Mm-hmm. on uh, what's now Rolleston Ave, where mm-hmm. it still is today, yeah. um, directly opposite the cathedral at the other end of Worcester Boulevard. Um, and the sort of the founding collections were his geological collection, but also a large collection of moa bones um, that had been excavated um, primarily from Glenmark in, in North Canterbury. Um, and we've got the most amazing photographs of those um, original displays of the articulated moa skeletons, which are oh. like nearly three metres tall. Wow. Um, and they're really cool. Um, and 
that scientific theme has continued all the way through to the modern day, and we have a we have a natural history team who are still sort of at the cutting edge of um, of scientific research in a number of areas, mm-hmm. um, particularly um, particularly in the study of birds. Um, but we also have a really strong human history side of things as well, or the humanities, as as some people would call it, and that actually what a lot of people probably don't realise dates right back to the founding of the museum. Springboard Trust is a unique not-for-profit organisation within the education sector in New Zealand. Springboard's been around for about 14 years now um, and works with works with schools, particularly through the leadership team, uh, to support effective strategic leadership uh, for our schools across New Zealand. Yeah, we've so far worked with about 522 schools uh, and we're unique in that we use and we have a lot of volunteers from the business sector who support that work and those that journey for those principles. Great. So how did the Springboard come about? So Springboard started uh, in, with a little group of principals in South Auckland identifying what, it, what they felt was a, um, a gap um, in, their under, in their understanding. So our founder, founders Lorraine Mintz and Ian Narev went to a group of principals in South Auckland and asked what they needed to do their jobs better and what would support them. And those principals identified uh, strategic leadership as their area um, they would, would like some support with. Um, our board chair Ian Narev uh, at the time was working for McKinsey and this is the work that McKinsey does and he used his expertise to support those principles through the first ever um, pilot of the strategic leadership for principles program uh, which was developed using the McKinsey method of strategy development Um, and each principle was matched with a volunteer from the business sector to support them on their journey through that program. Okay that's great. And, and uh, how long has, the, oh, so you already answered that, sorry. Um, and what does your role involve in um, Springboard? So as the head of delivery, I'm responsible for all our delivery externally to, um, to school leaders, uh, principals and school leaders across, across our, uh, the country. Um, so I'm, I'm there to ensure consistency of delivery from all our program managers, wherever they may be based. Um, and to ensure that the, the, there is a high quality, um, quality program and learning that is happening with, uh, with our portfolio across the, yeah, across the country. All right. Um, and, and how long have you been with uh, Springboard Trust? Uh, just over two and a half years. I started in uh, May 2018. Okay. Well, that brings me to the next question. Like, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, so I have always worked in the not-for-profit sector, um, uh, whether it be education or another element. But m- most recently, before Springboard Trust, I was working at the Rural Education Activities Program across on the west coast of the South Island. So based in Hokitika, but working with all the schools between Punakaiki and Haast, mm-hmm. um, supporting educa- supporting schools to fill gaps in isolation caused by uh, gaps in education caused by rural isolation. So. Yeah, okay. so it's been a lot of time. It's a community development role. Uh, spent, and mm-hmm. one of the major gaps I identified while working there was in the youth development space. So I spent a lot of time building kaupapa um, and programs to support youth development on the West Coast. Oh, cool. Now, was that also through the not-profit organisation? 
Absolutely. Uh, REAPs, there are 13 across the country um, in different rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're, they have some funding from the Tertiary Education Commission and the Ministry of Education, but they are charitable in their purpose as well. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. So you bring all that experience to Springboard Trust. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, right. And um, I'm interested to know, like, how is the trust funded? Uh, we're primarily philanthropically funded. So we have um, incredibly generous um, sponsors and um, philanthropic right. funders who have supported us over the last um, 10 years, uh, including the Hugh Green Foundation, the Aotearoa Foundation, uh, the Next Foundation, um, and many other smaller local um, local funders as well, including Rata Foundation here in Canterbury. Uh, oh. So we're incredibly fortunate in the, in the levels of support we've had from, from our funders um, nice. as well. In addition to that, we have an awful lot of in-kind funding from corporate corporate partners who supply us with volunteers to support the schools that we work with on their journeys um, in developing their strategic leadership capabilities. Oh, that's quite interesting. So this is all through profit organisation. Um, so do you, but do you get any uh, any grants or anything like that from the government as well for doing this? We are, yeah, (laughs) we're an accredited PLD provider with the Ministry of Education. So uh, schools are able to apply for our services through the PLD funding as well. Uh, The services we provide through that fund is often more bespoke and tailored to the individual school's needs. Um, While all our services are really high quality, those it may be that schools need additional services that don't come as part of our standard offering portfolio. Um, So we're able to tailor tailor some services to support them through there. Uh-huh. Cool. And, and um, now with regards to the leadership, I know you spoke about the principals and staff who initially started. Now, who is involved in the leadership at this point? Are they, are they volunteers from, from the private sector or are they still the original um, founders? Uh, we have, Ian Nareva is still the board chair of the of Springboard Trust, um, and uh, so he's still there, and he's still uh-huh. been volunteering his time um, volu- um, to support, to facilitate a cohort of principals through the Strategic Leadership for Principals program. So he's just finished finished up with that um, with the, with this year's cohort, which has been mm-hmm. fantastic. So he still volunteers his time as well as sits um, heads our board. Uh, so he's still there, and um, Dale Bailey is our CEO. He started uh, three weeks before lockdown this year, um, uh-huh. taking over from Lorraine, who's moved um, moved into the CEO role at the Hugh Green Foundation, who's one of our major um, major partners, major partners, and, and significant philanthropic funders. So, oh, right. so Dale's had an interesting ride this year. Um, yeah. His, uh, yep. <laughs> in his first. What? Tell us about it. <laughs> uh, well, he started partway um, three weeks before lockdown, which is an interesting leadership journey in itself. Um, yeah. Navigating, learning a new, learning about a new organisation, uh, trying to take the helm while also um, dealing with a global pandemic and um, mm-hmm. helping us stay afloat all, all through that. So um, he's done an amazing job, brought the team together, and really yeah. supported us in um, in understanding how we can. I guess not waste the crisis that we were handed and he was yeah. handed well. um, yeah. yeah so yeah it's been a fabulous fabulous addition to the team uh-huh. um, and essential addition to the team but not the easiest ride from a leadership perspective right. for sure. I yeah. see and which background does he come from and what sort of experience does he bring in? 
Uh, he brings in a, a lot of experience both from the education sector and from beyond as well. Um, his most recent role was working at Sapapa as head of, um, I think it was collections, head of collections development nice. and education mm -hmm. for Tapapa. Um, but he's also worked at Aero uh, and is mm -hmm. um, and has headed up Careers NZ as well in the past. So yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. Um, and and are these programs that the uh, Springboard Trust runs, are they available for both public and private schools? At this stage, they're available for public schools uh, because public, we yeah. because of our philanthropic um, funding and our charitable intent, uh, we we are ensuring that the services go to those schools that we see with the greatest need, um, who don't have access to private funds. Ellie, I want to delve a little bit into the various programs uh, that Springboards Trust um, uh, is involved in. So, can you tell us about the programs? Absolutely. In the previous segment, I think I mentioned our foundation level program, which is the Strategic Leadership for Principals program. Uh, that program is a 10 month program that takes principals through all the foundations of strategic leadership and how that looks, but also strategy development. Uh, so we recruit principals um, this side of the new year and they start the program in February uh, and we take them through understanding what makes a good vision. Uh, how to understand your current state, so understanding where your school is at right now um, with various lenses, how, and then looking at what the future state you desire for your school, the aspirational, um, the aspiration for your school as well. Uh, we talk a lot about stakeholders and how to bring your teams, your community, your boards, everybody on that journey of strategy development with you and how critical they are to the success of, of being able to achieve the vision that you set for your school. Um, we also talk a lot about measurement and how you might be able to measure uh, success and understand that you're on that path to progress. Um, and it's often an unusual space for schools to find themselves in because they're awash with data, but they don't necessarily use it to understand how they're progressing with their strategy. Uh, we also talk a lot about um, how to map the, the, the journey from where you yeah. are now to where you want to be with your vision over a three year period. So really, um, you know, really programming it out over three years in a way that's manageable because uh, schools like everywhere else is uh, short on resources and peep and time to do these things oh. um, yeah and then and we sort of break it down so we start at that high level of vision and we end up with annual planning uh, mm -hmm. with, the, with the low with the detail and the action plan and the resource plan that sit alongside that um, but the, the principals don't do that journey by themselves. They have a mentor, they have a capacity partner that works alongside them throughout the year, a volunteer <laughs> from the business sector who, who takes them, helps them through, um, helps them navigate the, the learning, but also and navigate any uh, roadblocks that they come, along, come across along the way um, and bring their understanding yeah. of strategy development from the business world into the school sector. So, and, the, and to the education sector, so yeah. That's amazing. So they're getting the best out of um, the profit sector into the, the tertiary model and the sort of the public sector. Absolutely, oh, there's huge benefits for schools to understand things from outside the education um, sector, but it's not a one way street. Uh, we find our, um, our, our volunteers gain just as much from supporting a principal and they, uh, their understanding of the education sector is uh, they're blown away by A, the role the principals do, which is absolutely incredible and no, no other role in the world is like a principal's role. Um, so I think for me, it's the, 
the most high quality authentic dialogue between business and education that you see mm -hmm. anywhere. Um, so the business sector is understanding how its workforce is learning and being educated and the education sector understands how to lead organizations from a business, business view. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a good collaborative model. Um, so um, how, how many programs do we have? Uh, sorry, do you have? So uh, we have we have a lot, but we have uh, we have well, <laughs> a number off the top of my head. Uh, we've got strategic leadership for principals program. This year, we piloted the strategic leadership for rural teaching principals program, which is also within that foundation level uh, programming that we have. It uses a lot of the similar learning from strategic leadership for principals, but is contextualized for rural teaching principals who have a, a, a different level of complexity and a very specific context in which they operate um, as well, where they're, they're not only principals, but they're teachers. Uh, they are often the go-to people in the community for um, leaders in the community in and of themselves as well. So we've, um, we've developed a program that tailors specifically for rural teaching principals. It's a very exciting innovation. Mm -hmm. um, once the foundation level has been completed by a school leader, uh, by a principal, we, we, we help them su support them to actually enact and achieve their, the strategy that they've developed over that first year. Um, so to do that, we have some off-the-shelf products, um, including skills workshops and things like implementing strategy, talent mm -hmm. management, um, not, not talent as schools think about it, but talent as business thinks about it in terms of people. Oh, right. uh, we support them further in their learning on measurement and how to measure well um, and keep and uh, measure to understand their impact over time. Uh, we have uh, schools workshops in leading change, leading and managing change. Oh, yeah. um, and, we, and every year we get our schools back together to do the next iteration of their annual plan. So once they've completed a year, they have an opportunity to be together, reflect on the year that's been and really robustly plan with their teams what happens next. Right. Um, in addition to that, we have two uh, high-performing leaders portfolio programs. One is high performing mm -hmm. leadership teams, where we go in and work with individual leadership teams in schools over a term uh, to really get those teams humming, absolutely humming. So it really works with the team, looks at how the team dynamics work and how they can optimize the strengths that they have within those teams as well. Um, in addition to that, we have the high, high performing leaders program, which is individual leadership development. We have uh, strong partnerships with, partnerships with Genesis and ICF, the International Coaching mm -hmm. Federation. Uh, that program works at, on an individual leadership level for both, um, both senior leaders and mm -hmm. middle leaders in schools. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one-on-one -on -one leadership coaching. It's direct um, and it really supports that individual leadership development. Um, yeah space as well. Thank you so much uh, for staying with us and now we're back again discussing climate change with Keith, uh, Keith Morrison. Now if someone who doesn't know anything about climate change, how would you explain to them? Well, when I, I'm going to answer that in a slightly roundabout way by saying that when I first arrived in Suga, I started hearing um, reports about what the communities were saying about climate change. And it struck me as extraordinarily wise 
because what they were saying is oh, climate change is us being corrected for our wrong development and to me that was extremely wise because that's a very good summary about what climate change is because that's exactly what it is it's, it's a natural response to what we're doing to um, the natural environment through our, what we consider to be development and we're getting some feedback that if we do this, this is what's going to happen. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's giving us information as about, is this actually what we should be doing? Yeah. So there's a cause and effect. Yes, there's a system involved. So it's a type of feedback mm -hmm. that we need to learn from. And if we don't, well, it's in effect us choosing for yeah. it to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is make the link to what is causing it. Okay. And that's where um, traditional cultures and so on and so on come in because um, the traditional cultures don't cause climate change and didn't cause climate change. They managed to live in a way which didn't create this problem and this sort of feedback. So it's a feature of what a certain type of colonial culture, mm -hmm. I've got to say, <laughs> imperial culture which spread over the world over the last few hundred years, what yeah. it's done to the world. And that, we're now getting feedback, this is mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Right. And um, so we need to reflect on what we're doing. Um, do we want this or not? Right. And, um, so that, in short, is what you would think, uh, say climate change is all about. Uh, it's mm -hmm. the cause and effect that humans are you know, doing and in response to what the climate mm -hmm. is doing to us, I think. Um, how have we caused um, okay. climate change? We've caused climate change by um, using natural world in such a way which is changing it and so the ecological processes are adapting to what we're doing to it like if you cut down a forest or burn a forest you then don't have trees you then have grass and so on so these are it's an ecological response and then there's ecological risk and then there'll be ecological um, regeneration and over so many hundred years, we get forests mm. again eventually. Mm. Now, these are, these are ecological processes. So what we're doing is that we are acting in such a way that we are continually bringing ecosystems back to base level, as if it's a, a desert. Mm -hmm. You think about when you plough a... Or, um, uh, you sort of uh, spray a paddock so it's all brown and then uh, plough it mm -hmm. you're basically making a desert and then you're letting that ecological restoration start mm -hmm. in a few hundred years that'll be forest again Right. after one year you do the same thing again so you're keeping it always in a state of um, right back at the beginning and that's the very lowest sort of ability to have carbon um, capture. Mm -hmm. Now, 
natural systems don't know about carbon capture. That's just a human construct. Mm. But they will adjust to um, that situation. Okay. And so the climate change is a natural adjustment to us doing this to these ecosystems. Okay. And it's not just the land ecosystems, it's the um, seas as well. So mm. the corals <clears throat> are being replaced, the corals are going to be replaced with algae and seaweed. Okay because it's too um, acid for the, um, for the corals. So these changes occurring, natural changes. So climate change isn't just about creating more pollution. So we're also changing the climate by the way we are fishing, by the way we are um, doing our agriculture, the crop rotation. Is that right? Yes, it is. And I know, we know in New Zealand, um, I think it's up to nearly half of our climate change um, impact is through agriculture. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, if we did agriculture differently, yeah. I mean, we could actually be capturing, it could be, have a negative effect. Right. Um, but we are choosing to have a certain type of production which is changing the, mm-hmm. the climate. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> so some cr- critics would say that oh, climate change has always been part of, um, you know, it's always been going. It's always been that cycle and humans haven't really caused um, grave effect to it. How do you counter those? Um, well, there's two points. One is that there's difference between climate variability and climate change. So climate variability is the natural variation which occurs. Mm-hmm. And that, that is always occurring and it's occurring now. That's why people say, oh, but we just had the snowstorm. Well, and it was the coldest winter and so on. And uh, Well, that's just variability. What climate change is talking about is the average, how the average is changing. Mm-hmm. Now, that average also does change naturally through sunspots and so on. But... What, you know, put this, humans are part of that natural system. And so humans, what we're doing now is having an impact on that process. Now, that is not something which is going to ultimately harm the process. The process will continue, but it is going to impact on us humans because um, it'll change us and make us mm-hmm. not able to do that. Right, so we're either a beneficiary or an adversary to the climate change. Um, climate change, we can either see it as a friend, which is teaching us what we need to change, mm-hmm. or an enemy if we're a slow learner, right. and we'll just get hit more and more and more because we, we're not learning. Right, I see, yes. And um, we're making the same mistakes all the time. Yes, and so <clears throat> if that's the case, then nature will continue to um, put us in our place until we stop. Mm. You know, they also say that, oh, you, you know, we've had evolution, we've had dinosaurs that died, we've had, you know, major volcanoes and floods and things like that, and we have evolved, and that's sort of, that's just continuing. We are not really 
doing that much of a damage to the climate or the environment mm -hmm. or Earth as... Um, well, that yeah. evolution is exactly right. I mean, that, that's, that is correct. Um, and so we could be like the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. If we are unable to adapt, yeah. we will go like the dinosaurs. <laughs> that's, okay, that's, that's worrying. That is exactly what will happen. Yeah. Um, but the dif difference between humans and the dinosaurs is that our species, and this is where spirituality comes in, mm -hmm. we're not only biological, we also have a spirit which means that we can create cultures which modify our behaviour. Dinosaurs mm -hmm. couldn't modify their behaviour. Mm -hmm. We humans can. Yeah. So it won't actually be all humans who disappear. It'll be those human cultures which don't adapt. But where there are cultures where people continue to be adaptive and responsive to their ecosystems, they will survive. Mm -hmm. So what's actually happening is an evolutionary process to select against the cultures which are being self-destructive. So it won't be all humans will go, but there'll be a lot of misery, in particular in the so-called devout countries, because they're the ones which are so in need of changing. Mm -hmm. Because it's... And this is where there's a certain arrogance in the West which I, I noticed in the Pacific too, that coming in climate change, we're going to help all these people with climate change. Well, they're not the ones who are actually needing the help. The people who need the help are the people living in Europe, in the United States, in New Zealand, Australia, because mm -hmm. they're the ones, we're the ones, who are going to have to change our behaviour. Right, I see. People in the islands, apart from a few places which will go underwater, mm -hmm. they'll just go up the, up the mountain a bit and they won't need to change their lifestyle much at all. Right. The way we are functioning is the, way, is the only way right now we know of how to feed so many people around the world, for example. Um, if we were to change those ways, uh, wouldn't we be restricting and uh, limiting our production compared to what it I is now? I think it's the exact opposite. What we're doing now is not yeah. actually producing food, we're producing money. Um, if we really were concerned with producing food, we'd be helping communities mm -hmm. to be able to be self-sufficient. But that's not our interest. Actually, what we're interested in is helping them make money. So you're saying right now people yes. are just making money. That's what that's the aim of it, yes. Right. So and that's the problem is that instead of actually looking at the natural process, mm. which you're right, food is what it's about. Yeah. They're looking at the money which can be made from it, and mm. that actually takes us our eye off the ball. Yeah. And so we actually don't do what's the best way to make food for people. We actually think about as if we're making a successful agricultural business is what's important, mm -hmm. not actually the food. Mm. But if we were really concerned on food, then we'd be doing agriculture very, very differently. We wouldn't have huge dairy farms. Mm. We'd have a very, very different agriculture. We'd have a lot of forests, a lot of agroforestry. Agri We'd have a lot of um, 
organic, um, um, vegetarian type things. Mm -hmm. And we'd be able to, New Zealand, we'd be able to have a very, very much far greater population. We'd actually be able to be a benefit to the world and actually allowing people, especially refugees and so on, from places where we're about it because mm -hmm. New Zealand's got so much opportunity mm -hmm. for producing food, but we're not doing that. We're producing money. You've been listening to The Common Good. This show will be broadcasted every second Friday at 11 a.m. and repeats every fourth Sunday at 1 p.m. The show has been made possible through the efforts of Lady Khadija Trust and with funding from Office of Ethnic Communities.